Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte clear liners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you could pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. There are some things that are too good to keep a secret. Like how your Amex Platinum card helps you have the perfect trip. I'd like to check into the Centurion Lounge. Or how it seems like you always get those hard-to-snag tables. Ooh, yum. And how you get the most out of select can't-miss events. With access to the Centurion Lounge, Resi Priority Notified, and Amex card member benefits at select events, you'll have to share. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash match. Just go to Indeed.com slash match right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash match. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. The spirit of performance is what defines Acura. And now, it's electric. Introducing the ZDX, Acura's most powerful SUV yet. Crafted using the same formula that brought them electrified supercars and multiple IMSA championships, the ZDX has track-tested performance that packs an energy all its own. Unlock the energy and order yours at Acura.com. I want to tell you a story. It's a story about a scandal, broken relationships, gossip, rumors, money, corporate rivalry, and a broom. A performance-enhancing broom. My name is John Cullen. I'm a comedian, podcaster, and for 20 years, I was a semi-professional curler. And I want to tell you the story about how a single broom almost imploded the 500-year-old sport of curling. We felt like we were bringing a knife to a gunfight. It's the story of a superstar and his fall from grace. I was being dragged through the mud. It's the story of two brother entrepreneurs with a dream. (laughs) I said, that's great news. It's a story of intrigue. I still don't understand why we want to keep his name secret. The full story has never been told, so I'm going to tell it. Broomgate. How a broom almost killed curling. It was a year I'd like to forget. To listen to Broomgate, search for Broomgate in your favorite podcast app. That's all one word. Broomgate. This podcast is powered by SportsDrink. Your digital water cooler. Welcome, everybody, to this week's episode of Caught in the Net. Uh... Co-host Dave Severance here with my uh, my buddy Mike Procopio Sweetchuck. How are we doing today? Oh, fan fucking tastic! We got we got royalty in the house today. Yeah, so, yeah, 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 <laughs> yeah. We got royalty today, Sweetchuck. When it yeah. comes to uh, this this basketball world, um, special guest today, Sweetchuck is uh, Drew Hanlon. Um, 
first met Drew, I think it was Sweet Chuck, probably seven or eight years ago. That's it? Uh, yeah, he was over at LMU doing some pre-draft, you know, work. And we had those dog and pony shows with all the, you know, NBA people come and watch. Right. And and uh, he was working out the guys and actually was probably one of the best ones I'd ever seen. So I went over afterwards and introduced myself and and just struck up a conversation and uh, had a good relationship with him ever since. And, you know, people in the basketball world obviously know a lot about Drew, but we're going to dig it, dig into his past a little bit and, uh, you know, find out how he got started in this crazy business and things like that. So uh, welcome, Drew, to the uh, Caught in the Net podcast. How you doing, my friend? Man, I'm doing great. I'm doing great. No, it's funny because when I heard Caught in the Net, you know, at first, <laughs> I was just thinking, you know, back in the day, you know, old uh, Snow Valley basketball stories from Tate's Lock, you know, oh, Caught in the Net. Nice. So yeah, uh, that's yeah, where it came from. Spent some time there. You know yeah. what I mean? So yeah. And that's, uh, uh, that's where we got the title from. Uh, an homage to Tate's lock, but uh, listen, Drew. Uh, Drew just got out of the gym with one of his clients, uh, and we're we're uh, glad that he's taking a few minutes to talk with us. Sweet Chuck, why don't you start us off? All right, so Drew, your first client, David Lee, was it David Lee? So the crazy thing is, so it's kind of a hybrid because everyone always asks, like, who's your first ever? Jameer Nelson, that- right? No, my, fir- my first ever one was – so Brad Beal was the first ever kid that I ever worked with. Brad oh, was 13 years old. I was 17 years old. We were both from St. Louis. And Brad was, you know, a guy that he averaged like I think eight points a game as a freshman in high school. Mm-hmm. In a summer league game, I destroyed his team. He was an eighth grader. I was a junior in high school, obviously. You know, he wasn't even playing that many minutes and stuff like that. And after the game, his, his parents came up to me and were like, hey, listen – all of our, you know, all of our other sons, they have football scholarships. Um, you know, Brad really wants to get a college basketball scholarship. Is there any way he could start working out with you? And so Brad started working out with me. So it wasn't me working out, Brad. It was like, he was working out with me. And then, um, you know, his second, his sophomore year, um, you know, he went from eight points a game to 24 points a game. Um, everyone was like, what did you do? You know, he gave me way too much credit and just basically said, you know, I worked with Drew all summer. He'd also grown a couple inches. He is lifting weights with his brothers. Um, and, uh, you know, once he got to that point, you know, he went from unranked to ranked eighth in the country. And I said, you know what? Hey, let's start, you know, you know, still working together, but also I want to start throwing in things that I think are good for you that might not be good for my game. Mm-hmm. And um, so I started working with Brad and Brad and David Lee and actually now Jason Tatum, they all went to the same high school. And so Where I was, was working that, out was Brad. That, was that Chaminade in, in St. Louis? Chaminade College Prep in St. Louis. And so I was working out Brad and um, David Lee was coming back to St. Louis for, um, you know, for a week to spend with his family. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I was, a I think, a sophomore in college at the time. And David, you know, gave me a chance and said, hey, I'd love to, you know, get in the gym with you when I'm in St. Louis. And uh, I remember I was in Nashville at the time. I drove back home that night. Got on Synergy at about midnight, 7 a.m., still hadn't slept. Got to the gym an hour early to make sure I mopped the floor because I was like, oh, my God, NBA guys aren't going to be used to this, you know, gym that I grew up at, you know, this kind of, you know, little suburb gym. But um, showed up, I worked him out one time, and he said, Drew, I was only going to give you one chance just so I could tell everybody that, you know, I worked out with you and gave you a chance. He said, but he showed up late. I put him on the line. And he mm-hmm. was like, what, what, are you, what are you doing? I was like, dude, I have a rule. Like, if you show up late to the workouts, you got to run. And it wasn't a run. It was a jog. But um, mm-hmm. I was like, you know, you pulled up in a half-million-dollar Ferrari. You should be able to get here on time, you know? And uh, he was like, you, I just needed somebody to hold me accountable. 
And then once I built that trust from the accountability standpoint, um, you know, I started showing him different things, breaking down his game. And uh, we really tried to go from being a guy that was only out of, you know, delay offense, a lot of screen and rolls to a guy that started really mastering mid post stuff. And uh, once David, you know, started having success, that's when my career really took off. Yeah, you know, it's funny you mentioned David Lee, Drew, because Sweet Chuck and I, way, way back before that, David was still in college. Sweet Chuck, wasn't he one of our guys at the Jordan or the All-America camp? I think he was at both, um, actually, but definitely at Jordan both. camp. Yeah, yeah, that's where we kind of first got to know him. Mm-hmm. But, Drew, uh, for our listeners that don't really know your background, I mean, you, you played at Belmont University in Nashville for what I think is a legendary coach, uh, Coach Bird. Um and you had a really good career. A lot of people don't realize that you were a really good college player. I mean, you know, your senior year in college, you shot 48% from the three on almost six attempts per game. Uh, so that, I don't know, was probably one of the top three-point shooting uh, season, uh, players that year for the season. But you played four years at, at Belmont, which is a really good, uh, I think it's a really good uh, program, Division One program, right up there with the level of Davidson. Um so tell us a little bit about why you went to Belmont and, and your career and a little bit about playing for Coach Bird. Yeah, so, I mean, Coach Bird was definitely legendary. I know that, you know, when I when I finished playing there, I think he was 10th all-time in in uh, college basketball wins. I mean, he had mm-hmm. won like 800 games, you know, a Hall of Fame coach. Um, and it was actually really good for me because my high school coach, Jay Blossom, was all defense. And Rick Bird was all offense. Um, you know, I remember us going in, we were, we were getting ready to play against Kansas. They were number one in the country. They had Sean Collins. They had uh, Cole Aldridge. They had the Morris brothers. They had Xavier Henry, all these NBA players. And I remember asking him one, one year, this is my, I think, sophomore year. And I was like, coach, what are we going to do on ball screen, pick and roll coverage? And he looks at me in dead serious. He goes, well, if you don't get screened, we won't have a problem. You know, and he was, but offensively, he was throwing all these wrinkles, backdoor cuts. So offensive yeah. genius, but um, you know, the reason I went there was just because there was two reasons, really. Uh, number one was because I thought the basketball program fit me. I wanted to go to, you know, the school that fit me the best um, from a basketball standpoint and academic standpoint, because I, I didn't, I kind of was realistic. I knew I was going to make the NBA. So their entrepreneurship program was ranked very highly. Um, and I knew that <laughs> hey, be able to, that turned out pretty good for you. Yeah, yeah no shit. <laughs> I was, I was forward thinking there. And in the basketball program, I wanted to play. Like I see all these people that jump in the transfer portal all the time because they, they pick a school that isn't a great fit for them. You know, I love the coaches, love the players. I thought I fit in, you know, basketball standpoint. And Belmont is a high scoring, run and gun, high up tempo team. And so, um, you know, I looked at all those things. I thought it, it fit well. And, um, you know, I ended up getting to play in two NCAA tournaments my junior year and my senior year. You know, opened up my senior year. We lost by one point at Cameron against Duke. So I got to check off a lot of the boxes that, you know, I, I dreamt of when I was younger. Uh, you know, the only one I didn't check off was, you know, playing in the NBA, which is every little kid's hey, dream. Hey, me and Sweet Check, we, we didn't get to check that one off either. Here, here's the crazy thing. I, I, I was doing some research the other day. When is the last – so I'm, I'm 5'11", and obviously I'm a white American. When's the last time a uh, under-six-foot white American was drafted in the NBA? Let's see if you guys get this. Under six foot white American drafted in the NBA. Sweet Chuck, what do you I got? I mean, all I would have is Brooks and Crotty, but like, I don't even know. I think they're probably taller than that. I, it, was I, in, it, was in, it was in 1990. So we're talking about it was 30, 32 years ago that that last time a white American under six foot was drafted. So I knew that my chances of going to the NBA were very slim to none. So that's why I had that realistic approach of uh, 
you know, going ahead and, and taking the entrepreneurship route when I was at Belmont. Yeah. Um, okay. So fuck, what's the answer? Uh, I, I gotta, I gotta look up. I don't want to start. Oh, here off we go. Oh, yeah. That's going to be, Hey, put in the show notes that they got to go do their research. we got a cliffhanger. You know? Yeah. Yeah. So, so Drew, you spent four years, you started your first season as a freshman was 09 and then you ended up in, in 2012. So that's, that's 10 years ago. I'm just curious, you know, I, I, uh, you know, watch guys like you that I really respect. Why? And what was the decision where you, you really didn't go into coaching, but you more uh, went down the path that you're on now? Or did you ever consider going into coaching? The crazy thing is I was always training. You know, when I was in college, you know, not only did I have David Lee, but I was training John Wall at the time, Jameer Nelson. Um, you know, I had Isaiah Thomas. I had a bunch of these guys that I was working out. And so I had momentum with the training industry. And, um, you know, for me, it was all about building relationships with players. And I thought that I could really impact the players, um, you know, a lot from an individual standpoint, if I was able to do it independently. The mm -hmm. one thing that, that I really feel is when you're on a staff, a lot of times players, whether it's right or wrong, have a mentality of, I have to work with you. Mm -hmm. Whereas when you're independent, a lot of times sure. they have a mentality of, I get to work with you. And so it, get, it allows you to build more trust. It allows you to spend more time with them, you know, off the court and kind of, you know, in their homes where I think a lot of the kind of mental work happens. And so, you know, for me, it was just all about, you know, as long as I can impact the players games, it doesn't matter if I'm on a staff or off the staff, I just want to be able to help them get better and improve. And I just thought the best Avenue that for that, for me was the independent route. What, Switch one, up. Yeah. One of the first times drew like that I, that I saw that you like, sort of made that next step was when Reebok invited you to work out all those guys like Jameer and Jason, the Jason Terry and a bunch of those. So how did that happen, Drew? Like, you know, here's the crazy story for you. So this is before the NIL. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, they hired me because again, I was doing camps and clinics all over the country when I was in college. Mm -hmm. The one good thing about Belmont was our coach, coach bird was big on you guys want to be regular students. I want to give you guys summers off. I'm going to trust you guys that you'll put in work on your own and lift on your own. And so all summer long, I was traveling city to city, state to state, even country to country doing camps and clinics. Mm -hmm. And so I had developed a reputation for, you know, running these really intense, you know, camps. And so when Reebok was looking for a lead instructor, um, I had, I had done some work with John Wall. And so they said, Hey, we're going to bring you in for the John Wall camp. And so they hired me to run their whole kind of all American camp. Mm -hmm. Funny thing is, I'm actually sitting here with Zach Levine. Zach was one of the campers that year, um, you know, at the camp. And I put a little asterisk. He didn't get to play in the all-star uh, the, the private workouts. Yeah, he, didn't, he, didn't. he wasn't one of the, the top recruits at the time. You know, obviously, he's uh, surpassed all those other guys that were in that uh, gym. But then he, he took receipts, huh? Yeah. And that's, yeah, yeah that's, that's, what, that's what the young guys say. And let me guess. A, let me I guess. He, he, he didn't leave the camp and assist either, did he? <laughs> none of my none of my guys lead lead anything and assist uh, um but you know so then um you know they they hired me because they you know i had a good relationship with john and they wanted something really intense they knew i had relationships with some of the other top high school players in the country and so they hire me i run the camp it's a week-long camp it's you know a really good camp and um a couple of months later i'm uh we're playing against duke you know my senior year and in the Duke game was, we were down, we got down 16 in the second half and Ian Clark, who played for the Warriors, won a championship yep. for the Warriors sure. and yeah. myself, we hit seven threes in the second half and we went on this run. And so they were giving us obviously a ton of TV time. 
And, um, you know, they, they said all the Reebok guys were watching the game and they were like, wait a second. That looks like, that looks like Drew. And they're like, wait, that is Drew. They're like, Oh gosh. Like we just hired a college kid. He we're not supposed to pay a college kid. And so that, (laughs) that just tells you how young I was. Like I remember there were days when I was working out David Lee, where, you know, we'd be up in New York and he spent his off seasons in New York sometimes. And uh, we'd go to like a club and I would literally be like, Hey Dave, just, you know, like (laughs) my ID, I'm only 20. I can't get in the club. And he's like, no, 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 you're good. You're good. Like to come in with us. But I mean, that's how young I was when I first started out. And, and as you guys know, you know, when you're that young, what you're trying to do is you don't have experience. So you're trying to, you know, make up for it by just watching hours and hours and hours of film. And you're really asking questions. You know, I remember one of the first conversations I ever had with, with Mike was when we were at snow Valley and Mm -hmm. I didn't really know about defense. I remember coming up to him because David Lee was an offensive guy. I remember that guy. And I was like, and I literally came up to him and I said, Hey, I know you probably don't get asked this question a lot, but I need to know more about post defense. And he's like, you know, just get your weight more forward, shoulders over your knees, lean a little more forward so you have a little more leverage and talks about kind of hollowing out and walling up and stuff like this and how to exchange from forearm to handbar. But, like, that's who I was. I was never afraid to ask questions, and I was honestly just always picking each other, you know, everybody's brain that I could. And, um, you know, I was volunteering at so many camps and clinics. I like, you know, Nike Skills Academy, they'd be like, hey, Drew, we can't really pay you much. I'd be like, who cares? Like, I'll be there. Because mm-hmm. I wanted to be able to pick the brains of so many other people because – you know, while I didn't have experience, what I did have was like a, a hunger for, you know, for knowledge. And, um, you know, I went all around the country, you know, trying to steal, you know, as much as I could from people. And it, it was little things like, you know, it'd be something where I remember Brendan Sir calling me and saying, hey, I heard good things about you. I know you're younger. And I was like, hey, if you'll meet me for lunch. And I flew down to Orlando just to meet with him. And then he would introduce me to, you know, Doc Rivers. And then boom, now I'm having to, you know, lunch with Doc Rivers when I'm real young. And, and that's just kind of how my journey was as a, as a you know a, a young twenty year old. Well, look, you're, okay, you're okay. still young, Drew. I mean, for our listeners that don't, you know, Drew's still. A, a I'm thirty two now. I'm thirty two. Yeah, you know, he's probably, probably got clients that are that are older than him still. Go ahead, sweet Chuck. So, like, the first NBA guy I worked out was Bruce Bowen. I was like twenty two. He was like twenty six. Then I worked out Chris Heron. I was like twenty two, twenty three. He was like. 23, 20, 23, 22. So like, I had no fucking idea what I was doing as far as like, Oh, like NBA guy. I've never worked with one work with college guys, overseas guys. And I just sort of, I had no idea how to structure it. We worked out. It wasn't, it was okay. It was good. But like your first dose of working on NBA guys, what did you, how did you structure it? How did you think about it? I know you watched a ton of film before, you know, stepping on the court, but like, how did, how did back then before you were sort of had the experience, how did you structure it from nothing? You know what I'm saying? Yeah. So here's, here's what I always did. And this is something that I got lucky. This was a lucky guess. Yeah. What I did was I basically always said, I'm going to have one to three priorities for an entire off season. That's what we're locking in on. Right. So instead of trying to kind of take a pancake approach, spreading wide and thin, I was like more depth over width. And so, right. you know, with David, I remember looking and, and I was like, man, as good as as good as he was with right and left hand, he had no hook shot when I got him. It was like, I don't remember the exact numbers. It was like 33% with one hand and like 29% with the other hand. And I was like, we got to really develop a good hook shot because I always believe that, you know, good post players, if they're like isolation scorers, not, we're not talking about pick and roll guys that are just bob threats, but they have the ability to either shoot over both shoulders with a fadeaway or a hook shot. 
And so David was not as much of a, a fadeaway type guy. So I said, all right, let's master your hook. And so that was one thing. The second thing was mid post. I was like, you know what? He's a, in New York, he was a really good pick and roll guy, you know, up tempo D'Antoni and, and stuff like that, had him doing all that kind of stuff. And so I was like, we got to get him good at, you know, being able to score in an isolation when he gets a mismatch. And again, you guys got to remember that for the audience that's listening, that's back when that, the power that, forward was actually a power forward. You know, right. that's when Zach Randolph was a power forward. Like, the, the, you know, they had the bruisers. You know, Marcus Gasol was even sometimes playing, you know, a four or five. Like, those are the guys that he was playing against. So I said, your advantage wasn't down in the low post. It was in the mid post. So, Mike, to answer your question, what I really did was I break down the film. I would do like what I call a SWOT analysis, strengths, weaknesses, opportunities, and threats. <laughs> strengths are easy. Everyone knows the strengths are. Weaknesses, everyone knows what those are. The O, opportunities, those are like opportunities where we can expand your game and get better and improve. And then threats, threats are things that can keep you off the court during crunch time, keep you from getting the playing time that you want, or keep you from getting the contract that you want. So that might be a guy that can't make free throws. We always address their threats first because those are the things that can hinder their ability to get to where they want to. Mm -hmm. And then we say, okay, which one, two, or three opportunities should we lock in on all summer? And then it just became getting into details and, and uh, building trust with the guy because I really think you're not really teaching a player how to play basketball until you're teaching them how to do things and then giving them the confidence to actually do those things in games. Hey, Drew, um, you know, Mike and I have both seen you work a lot and appreciate you allowing us in the gym to watch you. But, you know, I, I'm kind of curious. I, what do you do? And I know it's hard, but what do you do in, in the structure of your workouts to address defense? Not much, to be honest with you. I mean, really, we, we, we focus so much on the offensive end unless it comes down to something that is something where they don't know how to move. Because there's so many teams that um, – there's so many teams that have different schemes and different coverages and different rotations that for us, what we basically focus on, we're going to build your offensive game and defensively, I'm going to make sure that they know how to close out. I'm going to make sure that they know how to hollow out on drives. I'm going to make sure they know how to be – have shot bait discipline. But we're really focusing mainly on individual defense and just leaving right, the right. team defense to their teams and coaches. Um, and, and honestly, people always ask me about the relationships that I have with NBA coaches and player development staff. And literally, that's normally what we do. It's normally I'm more heavily focused on the offensive end, helping the players, you know, throughout the season, breaking down their game film, showing them kind of what to expect from other teams, defensive schemes and rotations and adjustments. Right. And then they're, coaching staff or player development staff is focused on, you know, the defensive improvement that, that those players need. And there right, are special yeah. case instances where, you know, three and D guys like a Kelly Oubre junior, or like a Shimmy J, those guys, we do do defense because that's their primary focus during the season as well. Yeah. And I, you know, I, I know Mike's familiar because he did a lot of that, uh, a lot of that with Kobe, you know, and, and analyzing uh, defensive coverages and things like that. Um, the other thing I'm interested in drew is, you know, we know Jason uh, is one of your main guys and you've done such a great job. And he's, I mean, he, he got a lot of heat, but the kid's 24 years old. And I, I just think he's such a tremendous player and you have a lot to do with that. What would you do with Jason in the off season to address the turnovers? And, and what's the best way to improve on, uh, on turnover? To me, I mean, I have my thoughts, but I'm interested in what you would think uh, is the best way to address the turnovers. Yeah, I think there's I think there's three things. OK, and so the first thing that I'll take you to the three things and answer it in a second. The first thing you have to do is you have to watch the film and say right. what's causing those turnovers. You know, a lot of people don't look they look at turnovers as the same thing. 
if you look like basically he had like a hundred turnovers in the playoffs, you know, 17 of those were when he was trying to draw fouls. So mm -hmm. you say, okay, that 17 of them weren't like, you know, turnovers that were forced. They were him trying to actively draw fouls and stuff like that. So then we say, okay, one of the things that we have to work on is being able to, you know, not go for the fouls. Instead, we got to play through the contacts. You know, that's something on drives. Then the other thing is there were a couple of them that were um, bad reads. So then we'd look at the film and say, you know, a lot of them were him getting downhill, especially driving right hard. And then basically they were Xing out and shooting a gap on the weak side when he would throw that skip pass. So mm -hmm. then we would do drills to get him better at reading that low man on the weak side so that he knows which guy to hit when it's a, you know, a two on one situation. And then the third reason was a lot of times where he was getting basically sped up. He was off balance. And so that's where a lot of times he was getting, especially later on in the games when he was getting uh, real forward heavy instead of being low and sinking his hips. And so that was just a, a posture standpoint. And so we look and we say, if we address those three categories, this is how many turnovers we're going to eliminate. Now we're at a really good number. And so, you know, and everybody's different, like somebody like Joel Embiid, he cut down on turnovers a lot this season. And it was because he knew where the, the defenses were coming from. He knew where the, you know, his guys were going. And one big change that, you know, Joel made was a lot of times in the past, he would, he would read where the defense was. Whereas this year he read where the offense was. So he knew where his teammates were instead of just knowing where the defense was, that little subtle change allowed him to kind of more freely just find teammates. And sometimes that meant just passing the ball out and taking care of the ball and letting them swing, swing instead of him trying to get assists with, you know, a good, you know, skip pass. And so, that would be the same thing I would say with Jason. It's just we got to get him better at one, reading the schemes and coverage, especially that weak side low guy. Two, we got to get him better, like playing under control so he doesn't get sped up and rushed and top heavy. And then three, we got to get him playing through contact where he's not, you know, going for fouls. And then if he doesn't get the foul, obviously be putting himself in bad situations. Right. You know, you know Sweet Chuck and I on, on this, this thing we do, we talk a lot about shooting. We have shooting coaches on uh, from time to time. But, but to me, the, um, the effectiveness and, and the success of, of a good development coach is how well they can teach shooting. Um, I, I think that's probably the number one thing if, I, if, I'm, if I'm looking at a, a trainer development coach. So can you, I, you don't have to break everything down, but can you talk to us a little bit about how you approach shooting and the importance of it in your workouts? I think I take a very different approach than most shooting coaches. My thing is I start with what the player does well. Like I start with what do they do well? You know, if they have, do they have a good pocket? Do they have good hand placement? Do they have good balance on their shots? Do they have good rhythm? Do they have all these different, you know, kind of things? And I start with what works well first because every player has a different shot, you know? Um, and then after that, what I do is I look at a couple things that I think are must-haves. Number one, I think you must have good balance. You have to maintain good balance throughout your shot. That is a non-negotiable for me. Mm -hmm. Got to have good balance. Number two is at the point of release, you have to have your, your shooting hand in the middle of the ball. Doesn't matter how you get there. Doesn't matter how you start it. But at the end, you better have your hand in the middle of the ball. And then number three, you got to have a straight high follow through. Those are my mm -hmm. three like non-negotiables. Mm -hmm. After that, what we do is we kind of reverse engineer how to get those things to happen. So for instance, you might have somebody like, um, you know, R.J. Barrett, who rookie season, he shot with his elbow in front of his face. A lot of lefties actually do. And then we had to move his elbow out. That allowed him to more freely kind of shoot the ball up. 
And, you know, we went from 30% as a rookie to 40% from three as a second year guy, you know, sitting here with Zach, Zach and Jason Tatum, both had really high over the head pockets, you know, when they were younger. And yeah. so they had a lot of flat shots, you know, when they struggle, they really struggled from range, you know, and so mm -hmm. then you lower the shot pocket and that improves kind of their shot consistency from deeper by lowering their shot pocket. Um, and so really that's all I do. Sometimes I'll turn a guy, you know, move into 11 o'clock so that they have a little more, you know, uh, you know, alignment with their shoulder. Sometimes guys are perfectly square. So my thing is, I think shooting is a lot of trial and error, but you're just basically trying to maintain balance with a good straight high follow through with good backspin. And if those three things happen, I feel like, you know, you're doing your job because then you, then it's all about just repping out the exact shots sure. that they're going to shoot in games, giving them the confidence. And then obviously just trimming the fat where you kind of, consistently make the shot more efficient and effective so they can get it off cleaner off, you know, a variety of shots and be more versatile as well. Hey, Drew, since you've got Zach in the car there, I, I want to talk about his game a little bit. Cause I, I remember uh, when he was at UCLA, I was, I was here in LA at the, at the time. And, you know, I remember watching him and I called Jamal Crawford. I said, Jamal, who, who's this kid from Seattle? Tell me about this kid. And Jamal just raved and raved and raved about him. But it, um and he was, he was right, you know, he was right on the money. But the one thing I noticed is, do you think, Drew, when he was younger, on his, on his open jump shots, uh, that he jumped too high? And that he's kind of, he, he's kind of uh, gotten away from that and, and not jumping so high on his shot? Because sometimes I think that can be a problem with athletic guys like, like him. I think his connectivity got so much better, where he just, the flow from his feet to the follow-through just connected so much more. You know, one of the big things in pre-drafts, it would be jump, get the ball above his head, and then shoot. Right. And what happens when you're tired or when you have a variety of shots? We saw, like, you know, a lot of times it was, um, you know, when he was shooting step backs or fadeaways, you know, he would really – his shoulders would recline backwards too. Yes. And so really just being able to keep your shoulders forward, keep the ball more in front of your face instead of getting behind your head and just letting everything flow and connect um, really helped him out. And, you know, the thing that – it's funny because when, when teaching shooting, the one thing I always tell people is feel and real are so different. And so I actually remember back in the day, I don't know if he remembers this, but having him say, I, I used to say, hey, snap your release and jump at the same time. So it was like shoot and jump at the same time. And so it felt like, you know, right when he was leaving the floor, he was snapping. But really, when you looked at it on slow motion and video, it was that fluid, you know, kind of jumping and can all kind of one motion shot. And so... That's what it is. It's a lot of trial and error. You know, Jason, you know, I remember when we were changing his shot, I would be like, shoot it from right above your eyebrow. And he couldn't do it. And then I'd say, shoot it from your, your mouth, shoot it from your chin, shoot it from your chest. And when he felt like he was shooting it from his belly, it was really that perfect 90 degree angle. And so, you know, it's, it's, it's important that one, you can get the player to feel what they should be doing. And then once they feel it, then they got to just rep it out until that feel um, is connected with what really is happening out there because I'm telling you so many players they feel like their elbows out but then when they look at it on camera they go wow it's way more in than I thought or they feel like they're not twisting and turning but then they see it, their rotation in air when they're watching video which is why I'm just such a, a big believer that video you know helps helps uh, sure. you know the development process a ton. How, how long does it usually take Drew to, to make those tweaks and changes I know it changes by player depending on who the player is but like if you're going to tweak somebody's shot, would you do it pre-draft? Would you do it the summer after? Would you do it? You know, usually you, you obviously won't do it in season unless you do. I, I would assume you didn't. But like how long does that process usually take for you? 
it really depends to me on two things. One, I think it takes longer if they've always been a non-shooter because of the confidence standpoint. You know, if a guy's grown up and they haven't been a shooter all their life, even if you give them a good jump shot, sometimes they just, they don't trust it yet. And so if you have a guy that's been able to make shots, you know, whether it's, you know, maybe not consistently, but they, they believe that they were a good shooter and you're making changes, it's usually faster. But I would say three months is usually what I always say. Like yeah. three months should, you should be able to make a tweak or a change. And if you're doing a whole scrap of a shot, I mean, that can take multiple summers to really kind of implement multiple stages to the uh, shoot shooting change, because it's, again, it's, it's hard. It takes tons of reps and it's gotta be, you know, your shots gotta be comfortable, confident, and consistent. Sure. And to get those three things to happen, um, it takes a lot of work and a lot of trust and a lot of belief. And you got to remove, you know, kind of the, the old shot out of your system, because if that old shot creeps in, you're going to fall somewhere between the old one and the new one. And that's where problems arise. And that's where I worry about drew. Like if, if, if it's a big scrap and they try to tweak or change during the summer and two things happen, either they play a lot in the summer where anytime it, it gets into competition or people there, they're going to revert back. And then if you do all this work in the summer and then hand them off to their team and then they, you know, again, preseason practice and games and, you know, does that old shot really creep in a lot in those, in, in those sort of pockets of time? Do you worry about that? Or do you just can like follow the player to their team and work with them again and still until it's sort of comfortable like that? That's the worry I have when you're changing a shot. If you start getting into the season or they play a lot of games, doesn't matter how much time you spend with them. They're always going to revert back, especially if there's pressure situations on them. Yeah, I would tell you that even the guys that even the best players that I train, they all go through multiple shot tweaks throughout the season, mm-hmm. which sounds crazy. But like, you know, at least there, I don't I can't tell you how many edits I've sent in Zach's career where I've just like the title of the edit says stop fucking twisting, mm-hmm. you know, or Jay or Jason. You know, we had to make a change in the playoffs this year with Jason where his shot pocket was going high. And then we right before the playoffs, we lowered it. And, and Jason shot amazing from three during the postseason. Mm-hmm. And it was – but, like, people were like – at first, people were like, what are you doing changing right before the playoffs is three-pointer? And I'm like, he needs it because, you know, it's getting too flat and we can kind of – you know, that's kind of like fix the roof before it rains. Um, you know, so what I would say is the shot change isn't just about – you know, it's not like one of those things where you go in, you fix it, and now you walk away and it, it's like riding a bike where you got it forever – you know, you constantly have to be evaluate the mechanics and, and making sure that they're sticking with, you know, right. the couple of teaching points that really work for them. So, I mean, that's, that's why I think, that's why I think that, you know, I mean, you guys see my travel schedule. I'm, I mean, I'm on the road 200 days a year. Mm-hmm. It sucks. I don't like traveling 200 days a year, but it's almost necessary because real improvement happens, making adjustments throughout the season and making tweaks that allow them to be at their best when they need to be at their best, which is, during the season, during the playoffs, and, and during the championship runs. Now you hate and, you hate. Go ahead, sweet child. No, I'm just saying he hates travel. Even when he tweets out the picture of the eighteen thousand dollar night fucking hotel he's staying at at the water. <laughs> or, I'm just asking. I mean, are those are those hateful days, or is that the okay days? Like, hey, hey, hey but listen, t- I'm I'm past I'm past the Holiday Inn stage and the, and the Southwest <laughs> stage. You know what I mean? So. I'm just glad that, uh, you know, Not I, us. I traveling style now, you know? Yeah. Hey, hey, but to your point, Drew, you know, Jason was, you know, 39% in the playoffs and, you know, from three and, you know, eight over eight attempts a game. So you, you did something right there, right before the playoffs. Hey, hey, real quick, just kind of rapid fire stuff here, Drew. 
most interesting place in the world you've ever been? Most interesting place? My favorite place would be Australia, um, Whitsunday Islands, just where you could walk from island to island. Um, I would say the most interesting place, though, was Tel Aviv. I just remember I landed at like 1 a.m. and they're like, all right, take a shower, get dressed, and then we'll go out for dinner. And I was like, it's 1 a.m. They're like, oh, like this place goes all night long. So, um, you know, those would be those would be two of the uh, two, okay. of my, two of my spots. Uh, the place that you've been is the, the most basketball crazy. Probably China. That's an easy one for me. I would say probably China. China, okay. Where, where would you uh, go? Philippines. I haven't been to the Philippines. Uh, they are, yeah, they're, it's, they're, uh, they're a borderline, you know, hysteria with the way they love basketball there. Um, Sweet Chuck, before we wrap up, and we really appreciate Drew, you know, joining us. You got anything else, Sweet Chuck? Drew, a uh, couple of things, but one quickly. Um, most of your players are number one options in their team. Obviously, they face a lot of either face guarding or double team. Or how do you sort of like game plan that when they're frustrated where they can't get maybe they're not going to they didn't get as many touches or they couldn't get to their spots? Like, what do you tell players when they're getting like, you know how it is? It's almost like a box in one or face guarded yeah. or switched on or double team. Like, is there anything that you sort of like to share with the player? Like, hey. Or is it just game by game, depending on who's guarding in the defense? It depends. Team? It depends on the scheme and system. Honestly, I think that's the phase of my career that I'm in right now. You know, when I first started, it was, you know, me trying to teach them how to, you know, improve their fundamentals. And then it mm -hmm. became, okay, now how to beat defenders. And then it became how to beat defenders and read secondary defenders. Now, I mean, you're talking about there's nobody like, and again, I went back and watched all this film. There's nobody that gets doubled like Joel gets doubled, you know, back. Mm -hmm. I mean, you have to go back to Kobe slash Michael Jordan days to yeah. see, you know, teams that completely face guard double on the catch and then are even running guys at him at the three point line. Mm -hmm. And then Jason, what he saw, you know, kind of this playoff stretch, Brad Beal, when John Wall went down a couple of years ago and they put the primary handler, you know, him out there, they're just blitzing everything. They're jamming. They're, they're squeezing the ball out of his hands even before the, the pick and roll. And so, you know, now what I'm doing is I'm trying to figure out what spots they need to catch the ball. So, Joel, we started watching a lot of uh, Dirk Nowinski, where he, how he got to the elbows I and the post, nails yeah. so that he could, you know, because it's harder to double out of those or it's yeah. easier to pass out of those spots. Um, you know, for Jason, it was getting up higher and extended. For Brad, it was instead of coming off, you know, pick and rolls, a lot of popcorn action where you're hitting the screener and cutting, you know, it's a handoff because now the handoff guy can fake it and turn the corner. It's mm -hmm. a little bit harder to blitz out because you have to play more honestly. But a lot of that, again, is picking a lot of film up and trying to see has, how has this been beat in the past and then just giving them every possible solution so that when they're out there in the game, they can kind of, you know, try it out over and over again so they can put themselves in an advantageous situation so they can eventually kind of beat the system. But as you guys know, I mean, sometimes, you know, if you got like if you're playing against the Raptors and Nick Nurse, I mean, they're pretty they're all my clients talk about it like they don't care if they lose by 30, they're not going to let the star player get off. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And so there's going to be nights where you just have to trust your teammate. And, uh, you know, I've been proud of the growth of a lot of my guys in the aspect of, you know, playing winning basketball and impacting winning, because I think the mentality behind it is a lot of these coaches understand that stars want to get their numbers. And mm -hmm. so what happens is if they shut them down, the stars are still trying to get their numbers. Whereas, you know, game one of the finals, you saw Jason had, you know, 13 assists and it was like, after the game, he's like, man, I had a rough shooting night. I'm like, you're one, you're, you're up one game. 
I thought that was I thought that was his game. best game of the playoffs, Drew, to be honest with you. Yeah. A lot of those players, a lot of those number one option players always think like scoring, scoring, scoring. And I always want to think the the European and the Euroleague way where like sometimes the best scorers, the guys who are making three million, they'll score eleven, but they'll put themselves in position to win by getting the ball to somebody else when that, you know, when that double comes or or what have you. You don't have to score every night to impact winning. Like, of course, you got to score, but like, you don't have to do 30 every night. You could do 24, and and it's like you scored 44, you know, like, yep. and move the ball around. The, the most impressive thing I thought with you, Drew, besides the work ethic and all that, we know you're great at that and, and what you do, but like, I remember when I was in Dallas and we had Jameer, and that's the first time you and I sat down for a while. We went to Colvine Pizza in, in Dallas. Uh, it, it, it's not, it, it's sort of like, Pizza in Dallas is sort of like getting, you know, an Italian in the, you know, in the witness protection going to Wichita, Kansas and getting a bowl of pasta. But um, like I was impressed by, you know, and that's when the trainer thing started taking off. And I didn't I didn't like a lot of the trainer. Forget about the work that they did. But like even at the high school and college level where they would never talk to the coach, they would never talk. Hey, this is what I've got Johnny here. What you know, what do you guys need to do? And they sort of like felt as though it was a badge of honor not to talk to the coach. You came down, not that like you had to, but you, we sat down and you're like, look, this is what I want to do with Jameer. What, what does coach Carlisle need to do? It wasn't a huge conversation or anything, but I was impressed by that at, at your age at that time. Like, where did you learn that communication from to the coach? Cause you didn't have to. And I, I wouldn't care if you did or didn't, but I thought it was pretty cool that you did. But like, where did you learn that from? Here's my thing. I, I think we all know this. And it's Players have so much on their plates at all times, so much stress, so many people pulling them and tugging them and, and suggesting different things. So many people that are, you know, telling them how to play their, you know, basketball game. So for me, it was all about rallying the troops. It was, hey, listen, it doesn't matter if it's my idea, if it's your idea, if it's the head coach's idea, the front office idea. It doesn't matter whose idea. Let's best idea wins. And let's all push this player in the right direction so that it gives the player a lot less stuff to worry about. Mm -hmm. And I knew that if I could be connected with the coaching staff, not only would it make it easier on the player, but it would also be one less stress on their plate. And right. so, you know, it's one of the, and it's also a respect thing, you mm -hmm. know, it's one of those things where a lot of times, regardless how we want to say it, you know, there's coaches is that are hired to do exactly what I do. And the players are paying me to fly in to do what the coaches are doing. And so what my, my big thing has always been, hey, we all win if the player wins. Mm -hmm. If the player is the best version of themselves, you look good, I look good, he looks good, everybody's happy, everybody wins. So I took the approach of let's get everybody on the same page, let's remove our egos. And the big thing is the players are the one putting in the work, the players are the one getting the results. So – really the only thing that gets in the way is everybody else's ego that wants credit for players are doing. Mm -hmm. So that's kind well, of my standpoint always. Well, I'm like, we, we should be like the, we should be like the wizard of Oz, you know, we're behind the curtain, giving them exactly what they need. And mm -hmm. um, I don't think enough trainers are, have that same approach where they really care, you know, about their players enough to like do anything and everything, regardless if they're going to get the credit or not. Hey, Drew, listen, uh, before we sign off, we want to, uh, our listeners, you know, you have a great podcast. I think it's called Unseen Hours. Is that correct? Correct. Yep. Yeah. So, you know, our listeners should should go check that out. Uh, we only have six listeners, Drew. So, 
Five and a half. Five and a half, yeah. So, but yeah, check out Drew's podcast, Unseen Hours. Hey, listen, Drew, uh, we really appreciate you. Zach, thanks for uh, taking a little bit of time to drive him around. Um, hey, you know, you guys realize you guys just saved him about 35 minutes of trash talk. We're on our way to play golf right now. So he got about 35 minutes of relaxation instead of hearing me just chirping it the whole time. Uh, well, you enjoy that Bel Air Country Club. Yeah, <laughs> and tell Zach to enjoy shooting 106 today, motherfucker.